Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined remotely, as always, by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. If I was a little groggy before your hello, I'm uh, I'm awake now after that energetic greeting. I could just tell by looking at you that you needed a little pick me up. I, I, I just wanted to inject us from the beginning with a jolt of energy, yeah. get us started off on the right foot. Uh, we got a lot to get to today. And uh, eventually we'll get into discussing some of the pleasant surprises that we've seen so far this season. But let's let's start just by talking about last night. And I know we talked about both of these teams last week, so we don't have to spend too much time on it. But I do think Nets Clippers is probably like the marquee game of the season so far. Um, maybe like Nets Bucks, you could argue as far as just like overall quality and star power could match it. But I, I thought this was a great game uh, and a really strong showcase for both of these teams. So given that we discussed both of them last week, anything that you saw from this game that jumped out at you, obviously the, the Nets wind up pulling it out with a pretty incredible shot making display, honestly, from both KD and especially Kyrie Irving. What did you see from these two teams that stood out to you? I think it it only reinforced the idea that I spoke about last week. And look, I mean, there's time in the season for that idea to potentially change. But right now, I'm holding firm to it and last night reinforced it. And that's that the Nets, they're probably not going to play consistent enough defense to be a dominant regular season team. But they will raise their game enough and they will play and do just enough on the defensive end against good teams and in games they really care about to usually win them. And I think that's the reason that they're going to end up getting through the East in the playoff. It's just what we saw in that game against the Clippers is kind of what I expect from this team when, when the chips are down and the stakes are high. And that's that, you know, the final defensive numbers might not even look good, but when they really need a stop, they will dial in. You know, they will dial it up and find a way to get those stops and play. Like I said, I'm not saying they're, you know, going to go through 16 minute stretches where they look like this elite defensive juggernaut, but they will have stretches in games, particularly in meaningful games where they do just enough, like I said, on the defensive end that it allows their just unbelievable offensive talent and shot creation and shot making, as you mentioned, to carry them. And when you have the offensive talent of Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden and the collective shot creation, shot making, playmaking, spacing, like all of it, and, and you have Joe Harris beside those guys getting essentially layup threes because he's so damn open, um, you don't really need to be that good defensively, you know? And uh, they'll do just enough. And so I, I'd say... I don't know if I learned anything from last night, but I think it reinforced an idea that I already had. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way in that I don't know that I learned anything new, but I, I do feel like the the reinforcement of previously held beliefs is a kind of illuminating thing in its own right. And mm-hmm. I agree, and I tweeted this after the game, like it, it reinforced my feeling that the Nets can crank up their defense to being passable yep. when need be. And I do think that can be enough. You know, maybe not to win a championship, but... Like I still have them as as the favorites in the East. And I think the the switch heavy system does work a little bit better with Harden there. And you saw it a bunch of times last night. Like the Clippers fell into that trap of trying to post him up and thinking that was a mismatch. 
And they got nothing against Harden in the post. Like Ibaka, I think, tried to post him three times, couldn't move him, wound up going to like the turnaround baby hook, didn't get it to drop. Kawhi tried to post him kind of like near the free throw line extended, didn't get himself any closer to the basket, wound up shooting like a desperation fadeaway that missed badly. You know, the the way that they attacked Harden, I thought, and a lot of teams fall into this trap. It was just kind of a mistake, right? Like you don't beat James Harden with strength in the post. Like you try to get him defending in space and try to beat him with speed. But but that's sort of the thing about the Clippers, right? Like they're not an especially fast team. And I think that's been kind of like, I don't know if I want to go so far as to say that it's a problem. I think they've been incredible this season, but I, I wrote a piece that I published yesterday about how low a proportion of their shots they're taking in the restricted area. And we, and we spoke about this on last week's pod. And I went through the cleaning the glass database, which goes back to 0304 to see, okay, have any teams that have won the championship taken this low a proportion of their shots at the rim? And the answer is no. And, and it's not even close. Uh, the closest one I found was Dallas uh, that took about 31% of their shots in the restricted area the year that they won and the Clippers are down around 26%. So they're a really jump shot heavy team. And I think I'm not saying this is necessarily going to be, you know, a preview of the finals, but I think there's a chance that these are the two teams that meet in the finals. And I think that would be a good outcome for Brooklyn. Cause I think the Clippers offense, despite being extremely high powered and having a ton of shot makers and a lot of playmaking it is kind of a good matchup for Brooklyn's defense given how little pressure the Clippers put on the rim and that being, you know, one of, or, or maybe the biggest deficiency for Brooklyn's D. And and I think that you, the kind of lack of speed, like the lack of that, you know, North South attacking guard who can sort of blow through the defense at the point of attack and get all the way to the cup is the one thing that's maybe missing for the Clippers, right? Like Kawhi and PG, are more sort of languid, like serpentine attackers. They'll snake the pick and roll and try and get into the mid-range. And Kawhi, like, yeah, he can use his strength to, to get himself to the basket, but he's not, you know, like going back to that example of him against James Harden, like he's not exactly like a downhill attacker. And those are the kind of guys I think Brooklyn's defense might be most vulnerable to. Yeah, I would say if you're asking me like right now, if I if I had to pick right now, the only team that I would 100% pick to beat the Nets in a playoff series is the Lakers. Would you agree with that? Or is there like another team like in some crazy unlikely scenario where Denver somehow shocks the world and gets to the finals? <laughs> like does Jokic like cause their interior defense so many problems? Like I, I don't even think Denver can actually get there. So Yeah, well, I, I just, I mean, I haven't started to conceptualize that I guess yet so I would have to give it more thought like we could sit here for like two hours just talking through all the mechanics of a, of a Denver Brooklyn matchup and I would absolutely love it but uh, I don't want to get too bogged down in that now something that's I, never going to happen yet. well I mean maybe it's just a, po- a topic for a different podcast is like who who would have the best chance to beat the Nets I do think the Lakers are still my championship pick I would probably not pick any other team to beat the Nets in a series as of now. But as I've said in the past, like, I don't think it's open and shut by any means. Like, I I think there are teams in the East who are going to have a shot. Um, There are certainly some teams in the East and the West who can pose 
maybe not the same level of matchup problems that Brooklyn can face the other direction, but but will be able to pose some matchup problems for the Nets as well. Um, you know, I'm thinking about Philly and like what Brooklyn would even conceive of doing against Joel Embiid. Um, obviously, just like a lot of double teams and then collapsing the paint and hoping that the Sixers shooting can't hurt them too badly. Um, but I think the Bucks would have a chance. Uh, I think the Celtics at full strength might have an outside chance. I, I yeah, I, I still have them as the favorite in the East, and I think uh, as well as the Jazz are playing right now, as well as the Sixers are playing right now. If I was tiering it, I think I just have like Lakers, Nets, Clippers. And then everybody else. That's kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah, I'd agree with that. All right. So we can leave that there. I'm wondering, Cash, do you have any thoughts about this Bradley Beal situation? Well, if uh, if people want my more unfiltered thoughts, <laughs> they can hop onto the Scores YouTube page and catch the latest episode of Unfiltered, where I do... Uh, um, dive into the Bradley Beal situation in a more lighthearted um, way. But no, seriously, it's look, it goes back to something I've been saying essentially since he signed that extension and, and took himself off the trade market uh, two years ago now, a year and a half when, and, and he said all the right things at the time about, you know, wanting to stay in Washington long-term and wanting to, you know, uh, finish his career there and all that. And I said at the time, you know, and it, it's not like anything I have against Bradley Beal where, you know, I'm saying he shouldn't be taken seriously or not to believe him when he speaks, but it's just like players usually say the right things when they sign an extension. And now we're a year and a half from that and he's still saying the right things about wanting to stay in Washington, but I still just don't buy it. Like maybe, I, I don't know, maybe it's also from like a lifestyle perspective. Uh, I think it's very understandable that guys might not want to like move and uproot their families in the middle of this most uncertain time. I just, Bradley Beal seems like too competitive of a guy unless all of his on-court frustration is pure fiction and he's acting. Um, In which case, he would only be doing it to show how frustrated he is being there anyway, but I guess that's a topic for another day. My point is, he seems like too competitive of a guy to truly just be okay with this. And if you listen to what he talks about wanting to stay in Washington long-term and saying the right things, he doesn't just say, oh, I just want to be here. Like, he doesn't make it sound like, you know, this is just where I want to be and that's it. I don't want to play anywhere else. He always brings it back with the caveat that he wants to win there. He wants to be the guy. I think it was in, uh, we were just speaking off air about the Fred Katz and Shams Charania piece. I think it was in that piece where they said he really admired Dirk. You know, <laughs> yeah, sticking I, re- I really want to talk about this. Yeah. So here's the thing with that, okay? Um, for anyone listening to this podcast, it's really young and, and doesn't know about Dirk Nowitzki's early career. The Mavs were effing awesome throughout Dirk's early career, okay? They they um, would win 50-plus games every single year. And the they, Wizards have literally never won 50 games <laughs> ever. They haven't won 50 games since like the 70s. The, the, no, the never. Dirk, never. Not once. No, they've won 50 games before. No, they haven't. I'm, I'm like 99.9% sure they have. But, um, yeah, what I was going to say, yeah, like, the Dirk-led Mavs, for as much as I used to clown them in the playoffs back in the 2000s, like, they would wake up with their 50th win, and they hadn't even played a 50th game yet. 
the Wizards, as like we're, we, they either have or haven't won 50 games before, but it's been at the very least, it's been like 50 years since they've done it. Um, the Mavs were contenders every year. Dirk Nowitzki won an MVP because even in the most disappointing postseason for the Mavs when they lost in the first round, they won 67 games that year. And Dirk was the best player on the best team. The peak of the Bradley Beal era in Washington has been making the second round. This team hasn't made the conference finals since the 70s. Like, sure, it's great to admire the legacy Dirk had, you know, as a one-team guy in Dallas. And obviously Kobe, the legacy he had, you know, being a one-team guy with the Lakers. But Larry Bird, like, I don't know, the list goes on and on. Those Usually it's because they were on teams that were perennial contenders and they were part of that fabric and that championship DNA and... You know, in Dirk's case, he only won one. In Kobe and Larry's case, they obviously won multiple. The point is, it's obviously cool to admire the legacy those guys left behind with one franchise. But what in God's name leads Bradley Beal to believe, other than just sheer confidence, which I guess I admire, that he can leave anywhere near a legacy like that in D.C. with this franchise that for the majority of the time we've had this podcast have been a complete clown show. They're a bad team. Um, that even if you believe Bradley Beal actually could be the guy to build around and, and, and truly build a contending team around, by the time Washington gets enough pieces in there around him, like I'm not, he's not old by any means, but his, the timeline's just not going to add up, right? Even if best case scenario, they get like Cade Cunningham or, or the or top pick this year, the timelines will not add up. And if they don't turn it around by, tw- by a year and a half from now, he's going to hit free agency. Um, you know, they can obviously give him the fifth year, which no one else can, but he'll be eligible for the 10 year service time max at that point, you know, that any team can give him even for four years, like he'll, he'll get his money regardless. Right. And so unless he straight up tells them I am not leaving, like I will never leave. They have to be operating under the mindset that they're probably losing him, or at least it's like 50, 50 for 2022. And you know, I'm okay. Like, I think it's worth the risk of losing a guy for nothing if the flip side to that is you're a contender, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, of course, it's absolutely worth a year of contending for a title, truly contending for a title. And flags fly forever, banners fly forever. But it's it's not worth it to risk losing a guy for nothing to finish 11th instead of 13th. Yeah, I I wholeheartedly agree. And I do think, you know, for one thing, it is interesting that Beal is so vehemently denying that he's interested in a trade as you know, reportedly told the team that he doesn't want to be traded. And I think the point that you made about the uncertainty of these times and not wanting to pack up and move in the middle of a global pandemic is totally reasonable. And not only that, like a, a guy's choices are his choices, right? Like I'm not going to, say that I know what's best for Bradley Beal and like pandemic or not, if he just wants to stay with the Wizards because that's what he wants for one reason or another, totally his prerogative. You know, like his talent doesn't belong to anybody. He doesn't owe anything to anybody except for himself. And like, if he thinks what's best for him and his family is to stay in Washington, then all the power to him. Um, I do worry, you know, if if part of his reasoning is like, oh, I want to be a Dirk figure in Washington, then yeah, like I worry that he may be setting himself up for disappointment in, in pure basketball terms, if that's his thought process. And I, I do wonder, like, if you're looking at this from the wizard side of things, you know, what makes sense for them? And the fact that they made this Westbrook trade as a kind of win now gambit, they give up the future first to get him. 
they now have his contract on their books. And I know Westbrook has been moved now twice in the last two years, but I think it's going to be really, really tough for them to move off of him, you know, unless they're taking back an equally onerous contract, which does an equally onerous contract even exist anymore in the league? I don't think so. So the fact that they're out that pick, even though it's, what is it? It, it, it at worst can be like uh, the ninth overall pick, right? Like Right. That. It's pretty heavily protected. And and that would be like a few years out. Yeah. So they, they have that pick out the door, which maybe isn't the end of the world. They have Westbrook on their books and he's probably going to stay there. Does that make them less inclined to try and tear this thing down and do like a full scale rebuild because they've already committed kind of to competing now. I mean, I suppose, but it shouldn't, <laughs> it shouldn't. Cause yeah, I mean like the, with two years left on, I mean, I guess a year and a half now, but basically like if you're getting Beal for two post seasons, that carries a ton of value. And it, it's, if, you trade him with one year left on his deal, then that's going to be less appealing. And you know what I do wonder though, now that you brought that up, because I, I, I was thinking about this last night, I was like prepping for the pod, is I obviously agree with you. Yeah, you know, getting a year and a half of Beal is better than getting a year for sure, especially when you're a contender trading from, you get two postseasons out of him. But I do also wonder if because, because of this year being this year and just, you know, all the uncertainty and the, just kind of like how mishmash the league is. And even from Beal's perspective, maybe not wanting to move during this time. I do wonder, like, obviously if, if next season starts and he hasn't been traded yet, then at that point, yeah, like from an asset standpoint, it's depreciated a lot. But I do wonder if there are a lot of teams that might see it as, as like they'd actually focus more on trading for Beal like and having a full off season with him and just that as opposed to trying to get it done in the season. And I know maybe that doesn't even make sense because you could trade for a midseason this year and then still have the full off season with him to prep for next year. But I do wonder about that, whether the price actually won't be that much different now versus the off season. And, and as long as they can get it done before next season actually starts, that the, the package would be, you know, basically the same. I, I do wonder about that. Here's the big difference to me. I think, for a team that would be looking to trade for him now, I essentially just think that you're casting a way wider net mm-hmm. because there are, are a bunch of teams that could talk themselves into trading for Bradley Beal for two seasons and say, you know, we can afford to give up this, this, and this, and it's going to be worth it for two guaranteed seasons of Bradley Beal. Whereas if you're trading him with one year left on his contract, it's going to get into okay, what's our confidence level that he's going to resign? You know, are there conversations going on with his representatives about his willingness to extend or resign once this season is over? And that's really going to narrow it down, I think, to like a select few markets probably. You know, like the the rumblings about New Orleans, I think might go away after this season if he's only got one year left on his deal. You know, I think there's a bunch of teams that could conceivably be in that mix that have the assets to get a trade like that done now that wouldn't consider doing that if he's only got one year left and they don't think that he's coming back. Denver is probably a great example of, of the good point you just made in that if say they actually were willing to put Michael Porter Jr. on the table to get Bradley Beal, there's almost a 0% chance that they'd be willing to do that for one year of Bradley Beal because 
let's face it, like just markets being markets. I don't think anyone would expect him to re-sign in Denver. It could happen, but I don't think anyone would be expecting that to happen if he goes in there, you know, on a contract year. So, you know, if Denver can envision two playoff runs with Bradley Beal in the mix with Nicole Jokic and Jamal Murray, maybe I think they can talk themselves into that. Giving up Michael Porter Jr. for one playoff run with Bradley Beal and then probably losing him. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, a lot tougher of a pill to swallow. Do you think, I've heard Denver thrown out there a lot as a Beal destination. And I, I think it could work really well if they found a way to subsequently balance their roster. Right. But just like a Beal for Porter Jr. swap, I don't know how much that helps Denver. Like, I think, obviously, it's like a point scored, I guess, is as good as a point prevented. That's kind of like that old baseball adage, right? right? Yeah. And so, yeah, if they decide like their gambit is to go all in on offense and they're just going to try and outscore everybody, then there's some sense to that. But at the same time, it's not quite like baseball in that, okay, everyone just gets a turn to hit. There really are, you know, there are like a limited number of possessions in a basketball game. And there is only so good that you can actually be offensively before, uh, you know, if you're completely neglecting the other end of the floor, that starts to catch up to you. And I think like what Denver really lacks right now is just big quality wing defenders. And so I don't know if like... You don't think Bradley Beal can do that? Like I, I think Bradley Beal is a better defender than he's shown yeah. without yeah. a he, doubt. He's not a big wing defender. <laughs> no. And I just think like sort of look, like their backcourt would be so crowded, you know, between between Murray and Beal and Monty Morris. Monty Morris has been awesome this year. Yeah. And I just don't know if that's really the guy that I would be targeting if I was them. But anyway, again, another another topic for another day. I think um, I was to say before we move off, Beal, I did I did want to mention because I found the uh, the post I wrote the night um, the the Wall Westbrook trade went down. And at the time, you know, I mean, I, I'm not high on the Wizards, but I I really thought they could like compete for like the seven seed. Like I thought I thought they'd be in. Oh, the I play. remember. Yeah, I remember I thought, where you said the Wizards yeah. would finish, my friend. <laughs> I thought they'd be in the play, and I really did because I thought uh, the East was bad enough after the top six-ish. And uh, and I thought Beal and Westbrook um, were still good enough that it, like those two alone and, and a decent offense around them were going to be somewhere between 7th and 10th. So what I wrote the night the trade went down was trading a future first-rounder and swapping one over page star for another just to graduate from futility to mediocrity might seem short-sighted, but the Wizards should be more competitive on a nightly basis. And if that keeps Beal happy and engaged, it's a worthwhile gamble. Instead, they've gone from futile to more futile. Bradley Beal has, if anything, been more frustrated and at wit's end during the game. And uh, yeah, it does not seem like a worthwhile gamble right now. Just before we move on from this topic, I do need to issue an apology to... Elvin Hayes, Wes Unseld, and any fans of the 1970s Washington Bullets. I told you. Who did, in fact, uh, win 50-plus multiple times. Three three of the five times they did it, they were in Baltimore. Uh, they've done it twice since they moved to Washington, the last time being in 78-79. Yeah. Um, the reason that I thought that, like, I knew that the team that actually won the championship, like the one, the one Bullets team that won the championship – uh, was a 44-win team. And I think that's why I kind of thought that they had never actually broken that threshold. The team that I was actually thinking of 
it was the Clippers who, until uh, the Lob City era, right. had never had a 50-win right. season. And they still haven't ever made the conference finals. Yeah, which I have to think this <laughs> this is going to be I don't the know, man. I don't it's know. It's finally going to happen. I know. I, I mean, your, your take at the start of the season was that we were going to see the same West Finals, right? Yeah, yeah. You're sticking to that? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I will because it's only been a quarter of the season. I think Utah is really, uh, I think, and we're going to talk about them, I think, today. They've played well enough to definitely be in that mix. Obviously, I'm, it wouldn't surprise me if the Clippers are there. I think they're, hmm. you know, they're good enough and they have two guys unbelievably talented enough to do it. But yeah, I, I think I would still pick Denver right now. And I think I might even pick Utah. I mean, I, I, I think it's become a worthwhile conversation. Like if the Clippers and Nuggets met in a series again, who's the best player in that series? Man, I mean... Look, if you go by, if if you go by total history and like what we imagine, like it should be Kawhi Leonard, right? But if we and, and go, Kawhi has been incredible this season, hundred percent. But if we go by just this season and what we saw the last time these two teams matched up, in both those instances, it would have you leaning Jokic because as incredible as Kawhi's been this year, Jokic has been even better. Jokic has probably been, between him and Embiid, the best player in the league so far. Yeah, and I think, you know, like, even forget, like, just the the sample size that is this season to date. I think that Jokic is, without a doubt, the best offensive player in the league. And I can't argue that. Yeah. I I think you could say he's been the best player, period, this season. I, I still wouldn't say that he is the best player in the league. Yeah, um, see, there's a big difference there, right? Like between, I think he's played the best. Yeah, this season, I think he's been the best player this season. I don't think he's the best player in the league because we we know who that is. Yeah, and and so I'm not going to say that he's the best player in the league, but I do think he's the best offensive player in the league. That's uh, definitely a fair statement, man. I mean, you, he's almost unstoppable uh, if he wants to go old school as a big man. He can shoot. He can pick you apart with his playmaking like few, if any, point guards can. Yeah, like... And I think, you know, the, the kind of transition that he's made, it's sort of a mentality, right? Like he... Even Mike Malone was talking about how he kind of needed to, like, force Jokic uh, to, to reorient his mindset toward being more of a scorer. Yeah. And it's something that we talked about in the playoffs last year, where, you know, once upon a time, teams would kind of all right, like we're going to play you straight up and dare you to be a scorer. And that would sort of be the way I think to defend the nuggets. And really in the last two postseasons now that hasn't worked at all because he has managed to just absolutely eviscerate single coverage in the post. And just one last thing before we move on from this, I wanted to, because I mentioned Kawhi and how good he's been this season as part of the research that I was doing for the piece that I put out yesterday, uh, I was just looking at some of Kawhi's numbers and I haven't checked them this morning since that game last night, but a couple really stood out to me. One of which was, first of all, he's posting up a lot uh, using six post possessions per game. So that's possessions in which he is taking a shot or passing directly to a shooter out of the post. And a Kawhi Leonard post up, including passes, was worth more than a Nikola Jokic post up. Which, That's if you've watched Nikola Jokic play this season, you understand how ridiculous that is. And, and a lot of that has to do with the Clippers' shot making, because they're shooting like a ridiculous, unsustainable percentage from three. And a lot of that is, 
you know, shots that they're taking out of double teams that Kawhi's passing from out of the post. And so I expect that to come down. Whereas Jokic, I think, is a lot better, obviously, at like hitting cutters and guys going to the basket when he's getting doubled. But I just thought that was a pretty incredible stat. And the other one is that Kawhi is shooting 82.5% at the rim this year. <laughs> that, uh, yeah. Um, that's that's mind-blowing. Yeah. And so I, I took that as sort of evidence of, you know, as much as the, the kind of redoubled emphasis on shooting and perimeter scoring and the corresponding struggles, I guess, with scoring at the rim, the, the spacing has still been really beneficial as far as their efficiency when they do shoot at the rim. And I think as a team, they're shooting like 69% in the restricted area. And that Kawhi stat obviously really jumped out at me as like, oh yeah, I think playing in a ton of space is actually pretty beneficial for this dude and for this team as a whole. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, All right, let's take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll talk about pleasant surprises this season. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, let's talk about some things this season that have surprised us in a pleasant way. Rather than disappointments, we've talked enough about those. We talked about the Raptors. We talked about the Pelicans. Let's talk about things that make us happy. I've called so, out enough clowns already this season. <laughs> yeah. let's, let's talk about some teams without makeup on their face right now. I have a pretty good sense of where you want to start, Cash. A team that you wrote about recently. Uh, a really good in-depth piece about a pretty surprising trend that I don't think anybody really saw coming this season. What do you have to say? about the Hawks defense so far? It has surprised the hell out of me. I mean, um, I, I was high on the Hawks because of uh, how awesome I thought their offense can be. And if if nothing else, even if they didn't perform up to expectations, I thought they'd be entertaining as hell because um, as we discussed before the season started, you know, the, they were going to be entertaining for all the reasons they probably weren't going to be good. And that was because as, as great as their offense was, they were going to give it all back and probably then some on the defensive end. Like I shouted out our YouTube channel when we started this episode, we literally did a a preseason episode of unfiltered on the Hawks. And the title was fuck defense. Like that was the title of that episode. And now we're sitting here more than a quarter of the way through the season. Now uh, I haven't checked this morning. So it's probably been updated now because they've played a game since I wrote that piece. They lost to the Lakers, but as of, you know, Monday afternoon or going into Monday night against that uh, in, in that Lakers game, They had a top 10 defense. And if you use cleaning the glasses, adjusted defensive rating, which filters out garbage time and late quarter heaves, they had a top eight defensive efficiency. So given how shocked I was and and how wrong I felt and how wrong I guess a lot of people felt about this Hawks team, but also the fact that I didn't really see anyone talking about it. It kind of seemed like it was flying under the radar. I wanted to dig in and see like what the hell is going on with this with this Hawks defense and how sustainable it is and and all that. So the first thing I noted in the piece is that, look, they, it's not like they've completely overhauled 
or like revolutionize their defense. They are, for the most part, their defense is pretty similar. They're a little less conservative. They're switching a little more, but for the like the sh- opponent's shot profile isn't much different. In fact, teams are actually getting to the rim a little more. The share of three-point attempts and corner threes are given up is actually higher. And in fact, if you look at uh, the NBA.com tracking data for closest defender, a, a, a lesser percentage of their opponent's shots are actually guarded tightly or very tightly this season, and yet opponents are shooting worse against them. So there, there are definitely indicators in there that while they've improved greatly on the defensive end, they're not this good. And I, I acknowledge that. They're almost surely not going to finish the season with a top eight, top 10 defense mark. Having said that, there are also a lot of reasons to believe that, you know, they could at, at worst be competent defensively, which really would be a big step for this team and this organization. First and foremost, they're taking care of the fundamentals. They're fouling less. They're turning the ball over less themselves. And so between those two things, they're eliminating a lot of the easy opportunities for opponents, right? They're not putting them on the free throw line as much. They're not letting them get out in transition. Last year, the Hawks were 28th in terms of allowing a lot of transition. This year, they're 11th. And then as we were texting about off air uh, a couple of days ago, Clint Capella has been an absolute beast. I think he's playing the best ball of his career. I think he's playing the best defense of his career, certainly in at least three years since that, you know, uh, peak Rockets run a few years ago. He has really solidified their defense in a lot of ways. One, he's been an excellent rim protector. If you look at the rim protection numbers, he's moved his feet really well uh, when he gets caught in switches and has done a good job uh, hanging with the roll man and, and preventing the damage roll men can do against the Hawks. And maybe most importantly, he's shored up their defensive rebounding. This is a team that could not grab a defensive rebound if their life depended on it last season. And and now they've been solid. I think they're middle of the pack to a little above it. And as I noted in the piece, for the most part, all of these metrics have improved from terrible to mediocre, right? It's not like they're they've gone from like 28th to second in thing. It's it's for the most part, it's like they did this that they were 27th or 28th in this last year. Now they're 11th or 15th. But if you do that in enough areas, right? And you take care of the fundamentals. You don't put teams on the free throw line. You don't allow them easy transition opportunities. And then you close defensive possessions with rebounds. You you should be at least a solid, you know, average-ish defensive team. And for this Hawks team, that's a big step. I talked a lot about the internal improvement of some of these guys. Like, you know, we all know Trey Young's the worst defensive player in basketball. Kevin Horter's not much better. And Cam Reddish, his defense is kind of inconsistent. He gambles a lot. But those three guys, if nothing else, have tried a lot harder. And maybe it's because they're playing, you know, meaningful basketball on a team with actual hopes and expectations this year, but they've they've just tried harder flat out this season. And, you know, I talked to John Collins after a loss against the Nets last week, and he mentioned those three guys in particular and how them being better defensively in front of him has allowed him to be a better defender. John Collins, I know you tweeted about it a couple nights ago, that if there was like a most improved defensive player of the year award, John Collins would probably win it. And I agree with that because he's been unbelievable defensively to start this season. I I was on record coming into this year saying they probably got to trade John Collins now that they have Gallinari to balance out that roster. Because as gaudy as his numbers are, for the most part, it's empty calories. And I think it was another learning lesson for me that it's we should probably avoid, or I should probably avoid, talking about young players like that before they've actually been given an opportunity to maybe excel in a, as I mentioned with the other three guys, the three guards that are playing better defensively, You let's see what those guys look like in a setting where they're playing meaningful games. Maybe when the roster's better around them, when the guys around them are playing better. 
And John Collins mentioned that having the three guys in front of him playing better, having Capella kind of locking things down. And then DeAndre Hunter has is just been great. You know, he's not going to get most improved player because the counting stats haven't gone up by enough. But this is a guy essentially averaging an efficient 18 points per game while being incredible on the defensive end. Absolutely incredible. I've been so impressed with him as a two-way player. He's their best one-on-one defender. Oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. And um, he's he's done a phenomenal job against stars this year too. And so you start to like add it all up and you look at the numbers, like the um, the quartet of Trey Young, DeAndre Hunter, John Collins, and Clint Capella. I looked at the 100 four-man combinations across the league that have spent the most time on the court this season. That quartet ranks seventh in defensive rating. And so again, that'll come down most likely as the season goes on. I don't think this projects as like an elite defensive team going forward, but it does change a lot for them. Just the fact that they at the very least are learning that you can have a competent defense with Trey Young on the court. That is really, really big for their uh, long-term outlook. And even if you just look at the season John Collins is having, you know, I think, I think it's a lot more palatable for them to, you know, show John Collins the money this summer if they need to in free agency, because this is like, they made a lot of win now moves in the off season, but I don't think anyone should mistake this team for a team in a rush. They're still a young team on the rise with all of their own first round picks. It's not like they sold the farm to contend in the next year or two. Like this is very much a team that could pay John Collins this year. And yeah, maybe there'd be some tricky cap things to work out over the next couple of years. They'd still be young with a lot of guys under rookie on rookie scale contracts. Uh, they could still move some chess pieces around and dangle first round picks with their young talent later and figure things out. Um, so, so yeah, very long way of saying I've been super impressed uh, and fascinated by their defensive improvement. And I think it really, really unlocks a lot of possibilities for them going forward. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. Um, I do want to sort of start with where you began, which is just the the, the opponent shooting luck that is contributing right. to this. And I, I don't think that should be overstated opponents are shooting 32 percent from three against the hawks that's the lowest mark in the league that's sure to come up they they might still wind up with the lowest opponent three-point shooting percentage in the league because one team has to every year but usually that even even like the lowest mark is going to wind up around 34 percent they're also uh their their opponents are also shooting 35 percent on wide open threes which is the third lowest mark in the league. And I think we can both agree that I don't think there's anything the Hawks are doing to make those opponents miss those wide open threes. I know there's always the, well, are they just leaving the right guys open? And just based on watching them, I don't really think that that's what's happening. But, you know, to to all the stuff you mentioned just about the fundamentals, like I, I do really think that that is super important. And... I, I want to talk about Collins for a bit because DeAndre Hunter, I know we've talked about what our episode next week is going to be. And I think uh, we'll, we'll talk about him a bunch on that episode. So suffice it to say, yes, DeAndre Hunter has been great, but Collins is almost more interesting to me because I, I think he's shown a ton of growth at the defensive end of the floor. The Hawks are like eight points per hundred better defensively with him on the court. And I wanted to put this to you because uh, I know how I feel about it, uh, and I'm curious your thoughts. He came into the season as 
a tweener, basically, right? Like we weren't sure whether his best position was at the four or the five. The four was problematic because his footwork and his speed on the perimeter wasn't such that he was better suited to, you know, chasing stretchier fours or wing fours for that matter. But he really wasn't a good enough rim protector or backline problem solver to man the five either. So when we talk about the ways that he's improved this season at the defensive end, do you see him improving in a way that makes him more viable as a five or as a four? I think I'd say four. That's, because, that's my answer as well. Because of the way he's moving his feet. I mean, I mentioned Capella moving his feet on switches in a way that I didn't see coming. But John Collins in general is just moving a lot better defensively and moving smarter as well. You know, if if you watch him play. And again, I don't know. I mean, when I talked to him after that Nets loss, he was kind of doing the whole good teammate thing, as I mentioned, and saying, well, it's because, you know, Trey and Kevin and Cam take took this like monumental step in front of me. And, and Capella is a big fellow who solidified things behind me. But he's not giving himself enough credit, like him moving the way he's moving and um, adjusting the way he's adjusting and just making the defensive decisions and reads he's making um, moving in space has been huge for their defense. And uh, yeah, I think, I think the way he started this season, he looks like a solid defensive four. Yeah, I agree. I, that's, I still think he's a little bit shaky as a rim protector. Uh, yeah. I, I think he, to me now profiles basically as like a, perfect modern power forward. I think if you're pairing him with the five, I'd still prefer offensively, I think for him to be playing alongside a guy with more stretch than Capella, because as much as Collins has become like a very viable floor spacer in his own right, I think his best offensive role is still as a dive man and somebody who can play in space. So if you could, you know, find a guy to pair him with, I know Miles Turner is like always the example that I throw out because the fact is there aren't that many guys who actually yeah. fit this description in the league, but somebody who can space the floor and really protect the rim, then you'd really be in business. Defensively, it's it's obviously worked really, really well with him and Capella together. And um, in 315 minutes of those two guys playing together, their defensive rating is 95.9, which is... I mean, that's outrageous. And that's not a tiny sample either, right? Like 315 minutes is pretty substantial at this point in the season. And again, a lot of opponent shooting luck is contributing to that. Opponents are shooting 29.7% on threes in those minutes. And I don't think you can really say your two bigs are having a huge impact on those shots when they're on the floor. But they're also grabbing 54.7% of available rebounds in those minutes, which is monstrous. And... The, the opponent free throw rate is also really low in those minutes. And I think even if and when that opponent shooting variance sort of regresses to the mean, they're still going to be fairly solid defensively in those looks because of how well they rebound and because of how well they're defending without fouling. So I think, you know, all told, I agree, like they're going to they're going to see some pullback. They're not I don't think they're going to finish in the top 10. No. They might not finish in the top 15. But I expected them to be something in the realm of like a bottom five or bottom seven defense this year. And I don't think that's going to happen either. Uh, and I think the big lesson is like you can survive with one bad defender on the floor. It's going to make you vulnerable, especially in the playoffs, because like that one guy is going to get targeted and attacked. And that's going to put a strain on like everybody else in the chain. 
it's going to force more rotations and more double teams. You're going to have to bring two to the ball, like emergency help. It makes it difficult. But if it's only one minus defender that you're covering for, that's survivable. And, and the Hawks are surviving that with, you know, like they're helping really well. They're rotating. They're helping the helper. And everybody else, at least in that starting lineup, uh, you know, like when Gallo and Trey Young are playing together, it's still pretty dicey. Yeah. Gallo's been bad. Yeah. And, and he's coming back from an injury, so yeah. we'll give him some time. But like he's not going to magically morph into a quality defender no. this season. So, you know, there, there are still going to be moments, I think, where they're playing multiple minus defenders at the same time. But the fact that pretty much everybody else in their starting lineup has been average to good defensively makes it way easier to patch over the leaks that Trey is bringing at the point of attack. Yeah, and I think I think what they would probably tell you, maybe not the players, but probably the organization, is that it, your, your concerns about the playoffs are 100% valid in terms of having to cover for Trey, but... Let's just get to the playoffs first, right? Like, let's, we got to get there first. Like, that's the next step in our franchise's evolution. And the way we're defending right now should help us get there. Like, we should be a playoff team if you defend like this. And I think, um, and that's why I'm saying, like, they can, they can take these steps that they seem to be taking and that they're on the tr- right track of taking and figure things out as they go because they really do have time given the roster that, they, you know, the young talent they've got. The other thing I'll mention too, so they're 10 and 10 right now, which I think is sixth in the East. And they've got, you know, they're a solid two-way team right now with a solid point differential. And they haven't had Chris Dunn yet. Yep. Uh, Bogdanovich has been hurt or, or out most of the year. Gallo, as we mentioned, is right now a shell of himself. Onyeka Okongwu hasn't given them much yet. Like this team can get better this year if things, you know, start falling into place. So. Just all around uh, a very uplift, as uplifting as you can imagine a 10 and 10 start being, you know? Um, And yeah, I think just another good lesson where like, yes, you don't want to fall trapped to small sample size theater. That's a dangerous game. But dismissing what you're seeing with your own eyes and the numbers that are coming up, um, just because it maybe doesn't align with what you thought coming into the season is an equally dangerous game. Um, especially when it comes to young teams where you can expect progression from year to year. For sure. And I think that, you know, that just comes down to like, I don't know, watch their games and use your eyes. Like, right. I, I think it, like going back to the John Collins thing, it's like, I, I watched him do a pretty damn good job on Anthony Davis the other night. And like AD still had a, a pretty good offensive game because it's AD, but like the Lakers were running, you know, a, a series of staggered cross screens for him under the basket to try and get like, get him posted up with solid position and Collins is like navigating those screens really effectively. He's like barely seating an inch. He's not leaving his feet. It's, I think it's clear. Like when you watch them, even if there is a little bit of luck baked into it, that they have figured something out or taken huge steps toward figuring things out. And I'm excited to see where it goes from here because like, I'll, I'll always readily admit when I'm wrong about something and if anything, the, the teams and the trends that I'm most interested in are the ones that I'm most wrong about. So yeah, like one of my bold takes coming into the season was that the Hawks were going to miss the playoffs. The reason I said that was because I was kind of like, I was looking at where I thought they were going to finish offensively and realizing that I didn't actually think that they were going to wind up being a top 10 offense. 
I think I had them finishing something like 12th or 13th or whatever. And I'm like, all right, well, their defense is going to be like 25th or worse. So how good is this team really going to be? And, you know, here they are, like completely proving me wrong with, with the way that they've played defense this year. So I think that's been cool to see. I, I do think that this team has a bright future. And, I mean, pr- props to Collins too for, like he, he rejected that, I think it was four-year, $92 million extension that they offered him in the offseason, bet on himself. And I, I certainly think that he's played his way to a big contract. I don't know. I don't think it's going to be a max necessarily, but for a player that young with that much offensive talent uh, to be showing the kind of growth that he's showing at the defensive end is something that I think a lot of teams will be willing to bet on long-term. I, I think he'll come close to max money if he keeps doing this. Yeah. Um, all right. Next pleasant surprise. How about the jazz offense and just the jazz in general, really, but like <laughs> their offense has been totally ridiculous. They're shooting the absolute bejesus out of the ball. I think they're leading the league in three-point attempts, and they're shooting 40%, basically, on like 42 threes a game. And it's not just like they're out there chucking either, right? Like they're getting those shots out of what's been, I think, really good offensive process. They're moving the ball incredibly well. They are running their sets with such precision and such quick decision-making. Like they reverse the ball and swing it side to side and kickstart actions on the opposite side of the floor. I think faster probably than any other team. And they're basically just dancing circles around opposing defenses. And they're still, I think they're fifth in the league in offensive efficiency. Like they don't quite have the offensive talent of teams like Brooklyn and the Clippers and Milwaukee, like the teams that I guess are ahead of them in offensive rating right now. But with their sort of balanced attack, they put teams in the blender, man. Like they never stop moving. And I think they, we don't typically think of the Jazz as being this like exciting team, but they've been one of the most fun teams to watch this season because like just watching them execute at the offensive end is a delight. Multiple people have talked, and I know Zach, like this is something like Zach Lowe has mentioned a lot of times about how Quinn Snyder's offense is like really complicated to learn for new players, like very intense and very complex. And I think we're seeing the fruits of that in a positive way this year, right? As opposed to guys looking frustrated or out of sorts on that. And even like Mike Conley did last year. Um, And yeah, I just think the Jazz have been a treat to watch. And, you know, as you mentioned when we were talking about the Hawks, where it's like you can like use your eyes and watch it. If you dig into a lot of the deep numbers with the Jazz, obviously other than the fact that their threes are um, going in at an absurd rates, like a lot of the deep, dive offensive stuff like doesn't look that much different but when you watch them you see the difference and like the things they're doing and like the process stuff that maybe won't show up even in deep dive numbers and then the other thing too is just like how much of this and I think a lot of it is Mike Conley looks like Mike Conley again and is the guy that they thought they were acquiring going into last season because Mike Conley's back and if Mike Conley had done this last year, they probably would have been pretty much this good last year too. So uh, I think a lot of that really does just boil down to they've got the Mike Conley they thought they were acquiring last year. And this is sort of what I think we both thought they were going to look like last year, right? Yeah. Like we were both really excited about the offseason they had when they got Conley and Bogdanovich. And we're like, man, they are just going to be running spread pick and roll, multiple ball handlers, playmaking at four positions, surrounded by like ace spot up shooters and it just didn't fully come to fruition last year in large part because yeah Conley was still finding himself and they had this 
whole sort of awkward starting lineup issue where Ingles started out coming off of the bench and it really wasn't working for him. So they moved him back into the starting lineup and he totally took off. Conley was out when that happened. Conley came back and it sort of tilted the balance out of whack a little bit. Like they just never fully found their footing for one reason or another. And like they can play better than this, right? Like Bogdanovich has not been very good. He's been better lately, but he got off to a really rough start and you know, he, he, he's shot the ball incredibly well as of late, but a, a lot of the stuff that I think has impressed me about him in recent years, like where he has kind of refined his off the dribble game and showing a little bit of verve in the post. I haven't really seen any of that. And I think, you know, he's, he's still working his way back from an injury. Like it might take some time, but, but he can definitely be better. Uh, Donovan Mitchell, I never expected that he was just going to play like he played in the playoffs last year, but like there are just moments where it's like, man, this guy could be like a, a an upper crust tier one superstar if he just put this all together, right? Because the glimpses of his passing vision and not just the vision, but like he has passing ability, right? Like he throws passes on a frozen rope, like with a ton of velocity and he sees passes that like, I, I can't believe, like, I don't know how he finds the angles on some of the passes that he finds, especially on kickouts. And it's just, we don't see that very often, right? It's very sporadic. But if he can start to do that more consistently, have a little bit less tunnel vision when he's driving the ball. Um, I, I just think there are like other steps that this team can make where they can be even better than they are now. Uh, I, I don't think they've like quite hit their ceiling yet, which is, I mean, maybe the shooting will regress and that will account for a lot of it. But I also think like, yeah, for as well as this team has played, it, nothing about it feels especially unsustainable to me. Oh, I completely agree. Um, I was saying earlier in this episode that I, you know, I, I had Lakers nuggets as a West final coming in, obviously with fully expecting that the Clippers could be in there. And uh, I think that Jazz have entered that conversation for sure. And I, I fully believe in what they're doing and that it is sustainable and that they can absolutely pose a threat to, you know, the teams that we might see as the, the real contenders in the West. They keep playing like this and, and Conley can keep this up all year and Bogdanovich gets back to, you know, more the, pl- the player he was last year. This is absolutely a team with the two-way talent and potential to not just trouble um, a West contender, but legitimately beat them. Yeah. I mean, to me, I think their issue is somewhat similar to Denver's obviously like they're a way, way better defensive team than Denver, but I think they're still a little bit lacking in terms of like the big wing defender category. Like Royce O'Neal is obviously like he can defend his ass off, but I don't know if he has the size to handle like a Kawhi or a LeBron. Yep. And, and so that I, th- I think could conceivably become an issue for them when when they get into the playoffs. But I think that that's why even coming into the year, I thought no matter what happens in the season, as long as they can get into the playoffs or the top six or, or win a play, whatever the case may be, that I thought Phoenix actually had the best chance in a playoff series against either the Lakers or Clippers because they had those big wing defenders that can trouble LeBron and Kawhi and PG in ways that teams like Denver, Utah, Dallas, whoever else can't do it right between Mikal Bridges and Jay Crowder. And I'm probably forgetting someone else. Like they, they have that personnel that a lot of those other wannabe West contenders just don't 
All right. What else has been a pleasant surprise to you this season, Cash? I mean, I think we'd have to say the way the Rockets have played since the James Harden trade. Have they lost yet? I think they lost the beginning, but, but they're they're on a streak right now. I think they've won they've six won in a row right now. Row, yeah. yeah. So they, they lost eight of like fairly uninspiring opponents, but for sure <laughs> they've taken care of business. It's interesting because I call, I say it's a obviously it's a surprise. I didn't have them you know playing this well or being this good defensively, which I know you want to talk about um, since the Harden trade, but. The fact that they're competitive doesn't surprise me. Like even when I wrote about them and did an unfiltered video about the trade, I did mention that like I thought I thought this now could be a team that was competing for the play-in spot this year. And that's still where I think they're gonna be. Like I don't they're not finishing top six. I think they'll be somewhere between like absolute best case scenario seven, eight, nine-ish, and uh, you know, maybe 10, 11, 12. But like they'll be in the mix to to get into the play-in. And and so from that perspective, I'm not surprised. The defense is another story. So yeah, they're number one in the league in defensive efficiency since the Harden trade. 102.6 defensive rating. And look, I you know, I don't think it's a huge shock that a team would improve defensively after moving off of James Harden. But I don't think you would necessarily look at this Rockets roster and think that it was some defensive juggernaut in hiding, right? And and I like I said, like the teams that they've beaten on this six-game winning streak, you know, not super impressive. Uh, they beat the Pistons, they shellacked the Mavs, beat the Wizards, the Blazers, the Pelicans, the Thunder. So it's like, you know, a, a middling slate of teams, but they're kind of beating up on a soft stretch of schedule here. But the way they're doing it, I think, is pretty inspired, you know? And Christian Wood, I definitely want to shout out for the strides that he's made defensively. It was never a question of tools with him, right? Like, he's obviously incredibly long and athletic, and there's no reason why he couldn't be, you know, an excellent backline defender if he just sort of figured out where to be. And... I just think he's done a fantastic job of figuring out where to be, like how to position himself when he's playing two guys at once and kind of keep the ball handler in check without losing contact with the role man. Um, He's gotten really good. I think at just not leaving his feet too early. I I think he's been pretty solid at anchoring that defense. And that's something that, you know, even when he was kind of blowing up with the Pistons last year, I think the defensive end was still a pretty big question mark for him. Obviously, they're still getting great defensive performances from mainstays like P.J. Tucker, Eric Gordon. And then you've got new guys like David Nawaba, who honestly has been one of the better guard defenders in the league. I think just like with his constant energy and activity level on the ball, fighting through screens, applying rear view pressure, creating deflections and steals. Uh, Jay Sean Tate as like a multi-positional guy who can switch and lock guys down one-on-one. He's been awesome. And John Wall has been pretty solid defensively too, which is not something I expected of him coming back from that long layoff and that devastating Achilles injury. There's just like up and down the roster, they're, they're getting good, high effort, high intelligence performances at the defensive end of the floor. And I think that's pretty cool to see after what this defense has been over the last couple of years. So that's that's all I really have to say about the Rockets. 
again, I, I'll, I'll be interested to watch them play against like a harder stretch of schedule to see how much of this is really sustainable. But I hope they can keep it going because I honestly, a lot of guys on that team that I just enjoy on a, like an aesthetic level, guys who I'm rooting for on a personal level. <laughs> Actually, I was gonna, I was gonna say I was gonna we, say are you sure about that are you sure about that Why don't we hit on this quickly actually before we move on what What did you think of that Victor Oladipo interview when he mentioned the teams that have been apparently giving up on him I gotta bring back the pound the rock Fugazi of the week for this one <laughs> who Who's the belt holder right now I don't even remember You know what I don't know It's been so long since I've since I've given this award out that I forgot, but uh, it's now going to be Victor Oladipo because this notion that he's been given up on or that the Pacers gave up on him. Look, anyone who listens to Pound the Rock knows I am very pro player, usually pro player in these situations. In this scenario, I think it's pretty damn clear to see that if anyone quit on anyone in that Oladipo-Pacers relationship, it was the player quitting on the team. Full stop. So, this this notion now that he that you know he wants to put out there that the Pacers or someone or people quit on him it's like nah man you very clearly did not want to be there anymore everyone knew that and could see it reports emerge that you were telling and this would be a very random thing for a good reporter to just make up okay that you were telling players on multiple teams that you wanted to you were asking them if you can come play with them during games down the stretch last season like get out of here with this, you know, chip on your shoulder because everyone gave up on you. Like, I'm not buying it. Fugazi. I mean, they tried to sign him to an extension. Right. (laughs) And like, not an insulting extension offer either, right? Like, I don't remember what the specific number was, but it was like pretty fair for a guy coming off a devastating injury who played as poorly as he had played last season. The guy's kneecap was in his shin like a year earlier and and the Pacers were still willing to give him a lot of money despite him not recovering performance-wise yet. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's one of those things where like players will just try and find motivation wherever they can find it. And if that's what Vic feels like he needs to do to stay motivated and have a chip on his shoulder as he tries to attack the rest of this season for a team that he may or may not want to continue playing with and earn himself a, a hefty payday in the off season, then good for him. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and agree that saying that he was given up on is uh, a little absurd. And to, to that reporter's point, it was Jay Michael who uh, made a point on Twitter of pointing out that, that a representative with the Rockets had like, texted him Oladipo's stats. Sorry, just inter- he he actually ended up clarifying when he said Oladipo's team, he didn't mean the Rockets. Like he uh, didn't okay. mean his actual team. He meant like his, his team of people, whether it was his representative yeah. agents, whoever it may be. But which yeah. makes which makes way more sense. Yeah. Um and yeah, in in that thread, which uh, I retweeted it a while back. I don't know, you can go and find it. Like I, I thought it was pretty illuminating, but he pointed out that look, nobody has actually refuted that report. That that he was telling other teams that he or asking other teams if he could play with them. Nobody within the Pacers organization has d- directly refuted that. No one in Oladipo's camp directly refuted that. He came out and was like, no, "I'm committed to th- playing this season with the Pacers." But like the fact that it hasn't been refuted, I think should tell you all you need to know about what was actually happening there. 
So yeah, that's that's all I have to say about that. All right, last pleasant Rock surprise. Is inspiring ball though. We'll give him that. <laughs> Absolutely. Whatever you need to do, Vic, to give yourself the motivation, do what you got to do, I guess. Keep playing with that chip on your shoulder. Um, last pleasant surprise. I got to hit you with this one, Cash, because this team, after I think about three games, Cody Zeller had gotten injured. They were either 1-2 and two or 0-3. Oh they weren't playing particularly well. And you just flamed them, said, this team is bad, bad, bad. And look at them now. They're 10 and 11. They're like middle <laughs> of the pack on both offense and defense. LaMelo Ball is probably, you know, the most exciting rookie in this class. This is sneakily, I think, one of the more fun teams in the league to watch, which is not something I would have expected coming into the year. What do you have to say for yourself? Uh, I still think they're a bad team. <laughs> They're not as bad as I thought they'd be. I mean, I thought this was the probably or one, not the worst team in the league. Cause once I got Hayward, I didn't think that anymore. I, I'll say this, my main criticism of them coming into the year when they gave Hayward that contract is that they spent a lot of money to bring in a guy that was just going to make them at best mediocre. And I'll stick to that. Like, I, I don't think they're going to be better than mediocre. They're mediocre right now, but I will concede 100%. They're not as bad as I thought they were after that first week. Um, two things. One, James Borrego is a good coach and has seemed like a good coach so far early in his career, despite the fact that he hasn't had a good team to showcase that with. Two, LaMelo Ball is a treat to watch, man. Like, this guy's a fun, fun player to watch. I, I, I don't want to make it seem like I keep shouting out our YouTube page as a shameless plug, but one of the episodes we did before the draft uh, was all about how LaMelo's the type of prospect that is going to get someone fired because someone's either going to get fired for passing on him or the team that took him is going to end up with the GM getting fired because he's going to fly. He was just such a polarizing prospect. It was going to go one way or the other. He's been he's been great and he's been, I think, impressive, at least effort-wise on the defensive end too, which is not something anyone imagined from him. Like his, his defense left a lot to be desired if you watched his pre-NBA stuff. And I think he's been like aggressive and, and at least had a good effort on that end. The playmaking vision at his size is just incredible. You know, can't shoot right now, but I think that's something that if he puts the work in, you know, I don't think we're talking about a player that's never going to be able to shoot or anything like that. Like, I think he's got a better starting point than Lonzo did. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think, think he's, he's already better than Lonzo. He is. is, that he is crazy? He, it's not. No, he is better than Lonzo right now. And he's a really, really fun player with, I think a very, very high ceiling. And, you know, I think the biggest reason for hope for the Hornets more so than they're just better than I thought they were is that, you know, long way to go, but I think LaMelo has the potential to be a straight up franchise cornerstone. Yeah. And, and I mean, few teams needed that more than the Hornets, right? Like, they've just been mired in mediocrity for so long. And they, you know, they had Kemba for a while who was a franchise player in some capacity. You know, not the kind of franchise player that is going to lead you to, like, the second round of the playoffs or beyond every year. But one who obviously really endeared himself to that fan base and it was uh, a big part of that community. But I think as far as... Like, I, I think it's fair to say LaMelo Ball has a higher ceiling as a franchise player than Kemba Walker did just because of the player archetype that he represents. You know, like a very tall ball handler who, you know, has the potential to be one of the small handful of best playmakers in the league, right? And makes everybody around him better. So I think that's really exciting. I think 
you know, it can't be overstated how good Hayward has been and, and how much of a stabilizer he's been for them, right? Just having like a wing playmaker who can play on or off of the ball is not going to step on anybody's toes. And when he has the ball in his hands, is just going to like make good decisions consistently. Like that has a huge floor raising effect. And I remember talking about like when they signed that deal about, okay, look, it's, it's an overpay and it's, it still will probably wind up being that, but this Hornets team wasn't ever going to be using cap space to sign anybody better than that. And I do think there's a lot of value in bringing young guys like LaMelo and, you know, Devonte Graham and PJ Washington and Miles Bridges, bringing those guys along in an environment where, you know, just baseline competency is the norm. And, and so I think that's, that's been really important. And I'm really interested in Miles Bridges because you may recall Miles Bridges was one of the guys I picked to be a breakout player last year. And I, I do think Miles Bridges is very quietly having a kind of breakout this year. And what's interesting to me about it is it's happening in a, a completely different way than I expected. Because what I saw him growing into was like this high-end 3 and D player who was going to be able to like rip and run and handle the ball and transition a bit, but in the half court was going to be kind of like a spot-up guy, but also he had the tools to be like an impact defender on the wing and obviously he's super athletic. But like to me, what's interesting is he's sort of thriving as more of a big, like he, he's more of like a 4-5 than a 3-4. And I think he's been at his best almost when he's been, you know, either a small ball four, or like even a small ball five. He's coming off of the bench with LaMelo and those two guys are like hooking up on some pretty spectacular alley-oops and kind of just like running roughshod over opposing bench units. And his passing is the thing that's kind of popped to me as something that I really didn't expect uh, and didn't see coming from him. Like his ability to make plays on the short roll and also as like, the Hornets sort of short the pick and roll a lot. And he's the guy often who is sort of a release valve who like LaMelo will run the pick and roll. And instead of hitting the roll man, he'll flip it to bridges and bridges is instantaneous with like that next pass, whether it's finding a cutter or hitting some guy in the dunker spot. Like he has a really keen sense. I think of, of floor balance and vision yeah, his playmaking, I think, has been sort of a pleasant surprise. And that's something that's been really fun to watch. So suddenly, you know, after a long while where it was like even the, the good years for the Hornets were just, OK, great. Like we won 42 games and we lost in the first round. Like what now? You know, yeah, how do we sold get better? to home playoff games? Yeah. Like how do we get better from here? I think their future is sort of starting to take shape in a way that is pretty interesting and pretty exciting. Yeah, I uh, no argument there. I. 100% admit, uh, as you do when I'm wrong. Um, and uh, I was definitely wrong about this year's Hornets in that opening week of the season. Yeah, I think if, if they were to make a run at a center to upgrade that position, they'd be a lock for the play-in. Yeah, a lot, a lot of Bismack Biombo minutes right now. Yeah, and Zeller is back, so they have a little more stability at that spot. But um, I, I, I still think that they have a pretty decent shot of making it to the play-in. But I think if they were to like, upgrade the center position they'd have a really really good chance of getting the plan and, and a decent shot honestly at making the playoffs proper so with that i think we can put a bow on this 
I was going to just throw in a fan shout out going international this week. Bruno Figuera uh, reached out to me on Instagram and DMs, said he is a loyal Pound the Rock listener since 2018, all the way in Portugal. Wow. So shout out Bruno and a shout out all of our Portuguese listeners, uh, thousands of kilometers or miles away that, uh, like I've always said, it's always cool when we hear about people listening to us in places that we didn't even know Pound the Rock was a thing. So shout out Bruno and same reminder I'll give every week. If uh, you're a Pound the Rock listener and you enjoy the show, reach out on social media, let us know. Where you're listening from, how long you've been a listener, hit us with some feedback and we will try to get you a shout out just like we did for our man Bruno in Portugal. Listening since 2018, I I can't even believe we've been doing it for that long. Like we're, I think we started in April of that year. So we're coming up. He he might be a day winner. We're we're coming up on three years, which is wild. So obviously extremely grateful to anybody who's listening who's been listening to us for any period of time, let alone for the last three years. Uh, it's It's been an absolute treat to be doing this for that long. So thank you to everyone for listening and to Bruno for writing in. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. Mm-hmm.